Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today is show number 390, and we are continuing our series with the 11 pre-linguistic skills that all toddlers, no matter whether they talk on time or whether they are late talkers for whatever reason, master before words emerge. And this is uh, skill number five, and today we're going to be talking specifically about joint attention. But like we've done every other show in this series, I want to start with the first skill and run through all of these because it is so important, especially for you as speech-language pathologists and other early intervention uh, specialists, but particularly SLPs, that we are able to just nail these 11 pre-linguistic skills so that when we are talking with a family or another therapist about a child and our concerns about a child, we can really, again, nail specifically what these pre-linguistic skills are that that child is missing. And I'm just going to tell you, it makes such a difference clinically when we can explain to other people what we're not seeing and I'll tell you the truth it'll make a difference for you if you can really master what these 11 skills mean and really master how to look for these and identify these and observe these skills in children really really early during your time with them you are going to be so much more effective because you're first of all you're not going to waste time you're really going to figure out okay these are the six out of these 11 skills that he hasn't mastered yet and this is where I really need to focus my time and a lot of times too we really are working at levels that are too developmentally complex for a child uh, to master meaning that the goal is up here and the kid is down here and we're still trying to you know start right here when we should really be focused in a very um, very sequential continuum so that we are looking at these skills as one building upon another so that we really really again don't waste time and again that's the child's time because we want children to progress and get just make as much much uh, quick improvement as they can and we don't want to waste a parent's time certainly if they are paying <laughs> for some portion of that treatment or again just even when they're not they just want their babies to to just function at their maximum potential and so do we and again that brings me to you you don't want to waste time either you don't want to feel like you are spinning your wheels with a kid and not getting anywhere or you look up and it's your fourth month of treatment and you think what is different what, what have we accomplished in this time? And so we really want to make sure that we are providing efficient, quality, uh, just, again, just the, the hour maximum for children. And so I think this is such a, a good way to do it, to look at these 11 skills. So first of all, and I told myself, don't look at the list today. This is, this is your material, and you should be able to say these 11 skills, and I already did it. So let's talk about what these are. And again, I hope you're running through these with me, especially if you're following this series. And if you aren't following this series, you should be. So go back and uh, watch the other previous shows. It starts at 385, and that'll give you the overview of these 11 skills. But the first one is reacts to events in the environment. Second is responds to people. Third is begins turn-taking. Fourth is develops a longer attention span. Fifth is what we're going to talk about today, which is joint attention or shifting and sharing attention. And if you're a parent and you've not heard this term before, joint attention, don't worry about it. I'll explain it in a minute, and it, it will make a lot more sense to you. And I already looked down. <laughs> Number six is plays with a variety of toys. 
functionally or appropriately. Number seven is receptive language, so understands simple commands and follows directions. Number eight is vocalizes intentionally and purposefully. Number nine is imitation, and that's not just imitation of words. It's imitation of actions and gestures and sounds. And then <laughs> finally words. Number nine is uses gestures independently because we know that is such an important marker for children and gestures usually come just before words emerge and sometimes that just before is a longer period of time for some children than others and then finally number 11 is initiates interaction and again I hope that you're able to keep this little list with you in your planner if you're a therapist on your desk in your car <laughs> if you drive like I did for years and years and years and years between home visits so that you really really memorize this and you really understand what these pre-linguistic skills are okay let's move on and talk about today's topic which is shifting and sharing attention and again this is what therapists refer to as joint attention now joint attention is such a complex skill and again it's the culmination of all the skills that we've talked about up until now and it is such a big marker for children when they do not display joint attention it often separates children who have a language delay particularly just an expressive language delay or maybe even a mixed delay receptive and expressive delay versus children with a much more serious developmental disorder and usually that means autism this is one of the core identifying features of autism is that children really really struggle with uh, joint attention and so again if you're a parent you might not have heard this term before and so many parents get joint attention confused with plain old attention that we talked about back in skill four when we want a child to develop a longer attention span and really stay with an activity and stay with you for longer periods of time and so now what we've done is skill number one we've, we're putting it all together with joint attention remember skill number one was response to objects or events in the environment so can a child look at something outside of him or herself and pay attention to that Do, will they respond to that especially when, when that object is uh, dynamic, it's changing. So like a toy with lights or sound, that kind of thing. So that's number one, responds to and notices uh, objects. And then number two, remember that was response to people. And so how a child uh, reacts when you try to interact with him. And then so again, these are all components of joint attention. And so skill number three was begins turn taking, meaning that they realize that this is a back and flow exchange that we have going on here. You do something, I do something. You do something, I do something. And then skill number four was what? It was develops a longer attention span. So meaning that I can stay with an activity for a longer period of time and skill number five really is the culmination of all those things we put it all together and then we come up with joint attention and so that's why it's so so important that we understand again like I said before that this really is a developmental continuum and so a child won't get to join attention if he's still really struggling to respond to people because he won't include other people. So when we have joint attention, I like to think about this as a triad of attention or a triad of participants. And so you'll have you as the adult and then you have the child that you are interacting with as a parent or a therapist or a nana or whatever you are. And then you have your event or your object whatever it is that you are sharing and and looking at and paying attention to together and what happens so many times is that a parent or sometimes even a therapist especially if you're new to early intervention 
And it doesn't even matter if you've worked 20 years in a geriatric population and then you decide you're going to do the other age of uh, other end of the age continuum and you switch to uh, pediatrics, oftentimes therapists, or you've been a school age therapist, you'll miss this. You'll miss joint attention and you will misassign a child's ability uh, to include you. And so you'll think that just because, and parents do this all the time, Let's say a child is playing with, uh, let's just say he has a marker and he's doodling a little bit. And so you think because you're coming along saying something like, wow, I like your blue marker. Look at that. Look, you made a line. Oh, look, I see a circle. And the, the child continues to doodle and you are watching him and you are layering language, which, which is exactly what you're supposed to do in that situation. But you think because he still continues to doodle and that you still continue to talk, that he is sharing that experience with you. When sometimes nothing could be further uh, from the truth because unless he is looking at you, unless you see some evidence that he's including you, or let's say he doesn't even look at you, but he, he talks to you about what you were saying. So let's say that you've said, oh, that looks, that looks like you're drawing a flower is that a flower and if he shakes his head yes even if he doesn't look at you you know that he's heard you and you know that he's responding to you so that would count too it doesn't always have to be visual but it's best when it is and that's how most often we know with nonverbal toddlers because they're not speaking yet and so they're not sometimes verbally responding so we do depend on that nonverbal response so are they looking at you are they including you with that kind of attention and so that's a super super consideration for us to think about as therapists so when we are playing with the child and he's still staying with an activity a long time he really should be able again to switch his eye gaze from what he's playing with to include you even if he's not talking yet even if he's really not you know we want him doing turn taking but sometimes children again their turn is that they looked at you when you're talking to them and that will often happen too before they really let you physically participate so we want to watch for that and we want to point that out to to parents and we want to say you know it is great that he is staying with this racetrack that we're playing with and I love I love how he's really shifting his attention with this with this little garage or this racetrack and he, boy he's putting the car up there and he's looking at the car and he's pushing the button so he's he's playing appropriately with this and I like how he stayed with it for like three whole minutes but did you notice that he did not ever look at you or me during that whole uh, play routine and that's fantastic that he did it and we're not taken away from his success there but in order for him to learn language we really need him including us because children who don't visibly or or verbally include other people really there's no uh, there's not really any evidence that they are processing that incoming information that you're giving them with all of that great facilitative language that you're doing and so we don't even know again without some evidence that they're really processing and they're really understanding they're really including so that's why you can't uh, let uh, you can't get faked out <laughs> by not really <clears throat> excuse me 
uh, recognizing and talking about and giving enough credence to and importance to joint attention. And let me just say too, I'll probably say this time and time again as we move throughout the information in this show, teaching joint attention is hard. I mean, you think recognizing is hard? <laughs> teaching it is even harder. And so I love this information and I'll tell you every time I review it, I think it makes me a better therapist with it. And I've got a little guy that as I was prepping for this show today, I was like, oh, I haven't done that. Oh, I haven't even done that. Why haven't I tried that? I haven't talked to his mom about that yet. And so even though I've been working on joint attention with him, there are still ideas that you think, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Let me get that going. Oh, oh, that's a great idea for this kid. So I hope that as you listen to this podcast, if you are still listening on iTunes and kind of doing your, your, uh, pattern of how you've uh, consumed the podcast. Uh, I hope that you're still thinking about, oh, I need this for this kid, or oh, that's a great idea for this kid. I haven't tried that yet. And a lot of times when I'm in a live conference, and I bet you can do this too if you're, you're listening or watching on YouTube, you're probably at a, at a better situation, certainly than driving, <laughs> to write a list. But I would just make a list of kids as I, I, as I was listening to the presenter and think, again, oh, this is an idea that I can use for this child and that child and that child. So, And even if you're a parent, you, know, you might jot this down for your own childhood. Oh, I never thought about that idea. And I know that's why you're watching this or listening to this is so that you can get ideas for a whole caseload of kids or for your own child. So be sure that you're doing that. And, and again, sometimes writing it down will really, really help you remember it so that you are ready when you get ready to target this. And let me just say one more thing that's kind of off topic, but I've, I've forgotten to say it. If you are a regular podcast listener, and you know, we've had this show since 2008, so you know, a lot of years, uh, and you aren't taking advantage of your uh, continuing education opportunities, especially if you're an SLP, you should do that because you're already listening to the podcast. And so, I mean, you could even end up with an ACE award, so that, uh, that extra uh, continuing education credit. So I looked that up right before the show. So if you get 70 hours in a three-year period, you know, beyond what you're required to have, I think it's our 36 hours or whatever the regular requirement is, um, you get that 70 hours you, you'll get that special award for continuing ed. So I wanted to mention that to you as well because I know a lot of us kind of are high achievers here and have never really gotten an opportunity to do that before, and this is such a cost-effective way to do that. So you're listening to the show anyway, so go ahead and get your continuing education credit at uh, Teach Me to Talk. All right, so back to joint attention. So I want to just run through a little list of questions that you as a therapist should be talking about with parents or that as a parent you're really trying to decide, does my child have joint attention? Is this a problem? So here's some things that will let you know. Does, is a child able to listen and respond to you when he's busy with something else? So if it's really, really hard to get his attention and pull him away from what he's already paying attention to, to even look up at you when you call his name. <coughs> excuse me, that's a problem with joint attention. And so that's what we need to think about when we see that. And pardon me while I get a drink. I'm recovering from my first cold of the season, and, you know, I have uh, recently resumed <laughs> seeing lots of children, or lots of children for me, and it's, uh, you know, after you, every, you know, eight of your Eight, eight kids in a two-day period have had runny noses, you know that you're bound to get sick too. So I'm recovering uh, again from that first little cold. All right, so back to this. So here, here's the big thing with joint attention too. 
When you point to something, will a child look at it? Will he follow your point? And I like to say to a parent, sometimes they'll say, well, no. I'll say, does he even try? Because sometimes the kid, especially when they're starting to acquire this skill, and especially if there's been a social skill or a social interaction problem anyway, before they really start to look, and let's just say that, you know, let's just use this pumpkin here. You know, and we're, we're trying to show a kid, you know, look, there's a pumpkin. And a lot of times they can do it when it's right here. But then we move it away and we're saying, even if a child were right here with us, and we're always saying, uh, look, look, look at that pumpkin. Sometimes kids will, again, start to look, but they sort of get distracted and you lose them sort of in the process. And so, I, you know, that's almost your own attention. That's, that's a kid who's, who's just on the verge of getting it. And so this really pointing to see if a child will look at that, you know, that's kind of our quintessential quintessential way during an assessment of measuring whether a child uh, has acquired joint attention so just that look and so that's what you can do as a parent at home just as you're sitting there playing with your child or as he's in the high chair or the bathtub or wherever you walk in the room and you go look and point to something and see if he will direct his attention to that or is he still staying with whatever it is he's doing and that that's that's the easiest way and the most obvious way to assess uh, a child's ability or a child's ability to shift and share attention or how his joint attention is. Another important part of this is, is the child trying to show you things? So is the child bringing you things? Is the child pointing and, and then looking back at you and then looking back at the object to say, hey, mom, this is what I want, or hey, mom, did you see that? Or that's really cool. And so that's another way that you know that they are exhibiting joint attention too. Um, does a child seem too occupied or distracted to listen to you or to look at what you're trying to show her? And again, you may be walking up to her and saying, look, look, and she's not interested at all because she's seen something across the room and she makes a beeline for that instead of what you're trying to do. Or a kid that you have to just kind of wrestle them down <laughs> to get them to pay attention to what uh, you're trying to show them. And so that would be a kid who's really, really struggling with joint attention. And sometimes we think, oh, it's a sensory problem. And you know, it is, or, you know, it's just an attention problem, but really it's just that they, they're, they're not at that point where they're really ready to share that attention with you or share that experience with you. So that's what we need to look at and that's how we can explain that to parents. Um, here's another way that we know when a child really struggles with joint attention. It's when we bring out an object and again uh, this is kind of the opposite of a child who moves on. This is the child who gets fixated on the object and so he is so intently looking at and exploring what you've shown him that you disappear. So if I had my pumpkin here and now we're trying to get a child to look at this, and I'm saying, Brandon, wow, it's my pumpkin. Look, look. And once Brandon sees the pumpkin, then he's all about the pumpkin. And it does not matter what Laura is saying in the background <laughs> because he's become fixated on this. And, again, that's great. He's looking at that. He's directing his attention to that, but he's not really hearing what I'm saying. And when he's not processing that and listening to that, he's not understanding, oh, this is a pumpkin, and this is – orange and this is you know all the other things that I might be saying about that or it's Thanksgiving this is a pumpkin look at this I'm going to show you another pumpkin later he's not gotten any of that because he's just fixated on the pumpkin and so again that's something that we would look for with children and know that that's uh, what we have to target all right so let's move on and talk about 
more specifically what we can do to work on joint attention and again it is hard it is hard and and i'll just say that uh, straight up and especially if you don't have lots of experience working with toddlers and particularly toddlers with autism um, this is something you're really going to have to kind of dig down and perfect because it's not something that you probably learned in grad school or something you perfected. Uh, that, or Unless you've worked on it, you haven't perfected it probably. And this information is from my therapy manual called Let's Talk About Talking, and I haven't mentioned that yet, uh, but I wanted to go ahead and let you know and mention that for you. And so uh, skill number five, joint attention here. And it, again, this is so, so, so important to parents because – Unless kids notice what we're talking about, like I just said with the example about the pumpkin, they're not really linking language with that, and it's uh, they're not getting the important information that other people want to teach with them or, or want to share with them. And they are really, really missing out on opportunities for learning language when they are either so busy that they can't attend and can't share an experience with you, or like I said, they just get radar locked and they're just fixated on the object and don't ever include you too. So we've already talked about what it looks like when um, a kid has good joint attention. He's following your point, he's staying with you, and then when he doesn't, when he doesn't look, when you point to an object, doesn't notice it, he doesn't bring items to show you, and it's super, super hard to get his attention when he's focused uh, elsewhere. So that's why we need to work on that and what, um, what we need to do. So let's move on now to talk about the specific strategies and what you can do as a therapist or a parent to make this better. First of all, carefully look for joint attention, and I've already explained uh, how we can really, really mess that up as adults. And so really, really uh, point that out as a therapist to a parent or sometimes if you are a super-duper on-it parent, you might be pointing this out to your therapist and say, and I get emails from parents like this all the time. I just I just so appreciate parents who will say, hey, I heard that on your show and I never thought about that before. And then I mentioned it to my team and, you know, and they'll go on to tell me a story, you know, oh, she had not thought about that either and we started working on that and I got so much better. Or, or sometimes they'll say, I thought it was a problem and then my therapist said, no, this is – you know, and it really kind of the, another point that a parent had not considered about that. And so, again, I love it when a parent can take this information and take it to her therapist. And those are my favorite kinds of parents to work with because they keep me on my toes. And I, I think it's great when that happens. So if you're that kind of mom or dad, you know, congratulations to you. So look at this uh, with joint attention. And what you want to do is you determine at what point joint attention is missing and what kind of is the just a teeny tiny little part that's so hard for a kid to master. And so let's kind of walk through this. And again, you might not have thought about it this way as a therapist. It's probably something you know, but you don't know that you know it. <laughs> you just do it instinctively. But this is so great when you can isolate this information and really share it with parents. And so... First of all, does a child notice when you point to things or when you show him things, or is it hard to get his attention? So in other words, is it at the very beginning of this process? Is that where you, you know, do you not ever get him? Do you, is it just, can you not even sort of start to get joint attention? And when that happens, you know, remember we talked about at the beginning, this skill really is a culmination or a continuum of the other skills that we've reviewed. So is it that he won't pay attention to the object? Well, then you need to go back and, 
focus on skill number one. Is it that he won't respond to people? So is it that it's you, that he's not, he's not responding to you? So it is that other person component. Is it that interactive component? So then, okay, well, you know what you have to work on there. Is it that he doesn't understand that it's the back and flow? He might notice you just for a split second or have that fleeting attention, but again, he's not really, really staying with you, so he doesn't have that reciprocity or that turn-taking piece. So then you think, ah, oh, that's what I've got to work on. Or is it really an attention piece that we talked about last week? particularly for children who do have those sensory systems that seem to drive, drive, drive them? Or is his sensory system so, is he so under aroused that he doesn't participate? You know, those are the really flat kids that we talked a lot about last week. Uh, and those are your components, and those are those are the places that you're looking, and you're thinking, well, you know, which one is it? Which of those four first four skills is he not really, really, uh, he, we need to strengthen some more. Has he not mastered? So, so that's a good way to kind of think about this. And here's some other questions that'll help you decide. You know, does she respond when she calls her, you call her name, or does she seem to ignore you? And so we've talked about before what a marker this is for autism and how that's just a really consistent characteristic, especially toddlers, when we're first looking at them and when we first start to notice their red flags uh, for autism. That's one of the things that they say. And a parent, again, a kid, a kid might be, uh, a kid might have some splinter skills that that really kind of fool you there. And so, until you say to a parent, you know, does she answer when you call her name? Uh, you're not going to know. And so that's, or, or during a therapy session, you know, if you have to call his name 15 times before he responds to you from the other side of the room, you know, well, that's one of the things I've got to work on. I've got to help him learn his name and help him learn to respond to his name. And just kind of a side note, I did a therapy tip of the week about that a few uh, weeks ago. So go back and look for those tips on YouTube. Those really work. All right. Um, does a child actively listen to you when you begin to talk? And so sometimes we'll get children that, you call their name or you somehow get their attention and you show them the object and you and it starts out really great but then after a few seconds you lose them and they either get up and do something else or you can you, they no longer look at you like we talked about before with the pumpkin example you've lost them and so to me you, that really is a language processing or a receptive language issue he's fine and he's with me at the beginning of this process, when we first start to share this experience together, when I'm showing him something or I'm redirecting his attention, but all the language, he just checks out because it's too much for him. And see, that's important information to know because you think, well, I've got to, I've got to do something. I've got to modify something about the way that I'm talking to him to make it easier for him to process. Usually, it's that you need to talk less not more. Now, sometimes it is that you need to talk more, but if it's a busy kid or an overstimulated kid and you just start your talking, you know, you're talking, we used that example before about the pumpkin, but let's, let's make it toy related. So let's say that you want to show him something like, um, oh gosh, a set of spinny, I've got this cool toy now where the uh, toy spins all the way down and you start to talk to him about that and then you that's probably not a good example because he's probably going to be enticed but let's just say any toy any toy that the child likes and you are talking to him about it and then you are you lose him for whatever reason and so you might know that instead of saying something like oh my goodness look at that cool racetrack did you see the car swirl down that's really cool you push the lever and then the cars go down let's do that again that's probably too much and so you should just be saying things like wow 
oh, look, and using lots of animation and lots of excitement and lots of anticipation. And then you might use, again, more gestures there than words because your words are what over, overwhelms him or he, what he decides to tune out because he just can't process what you're saying. And so you'll get a lot of information there, and then you know with kids like that what, what's a big problem. You know that you've got to work on receptive language, and you know you've got to simplify. Like we just talked about, instead of using lots of long sentence-length explanations, you stick to single words and short phrases. And, and don't be weird about this as a therapist and say, well, I want him to hear the adult models. He's going to hear it anyway. <laughs> he's going to hear those phrases in longer sentences anyway because he's with other people all day. And, and we don't, we're not going to simplify with him all day. We're just not. But for that specific instance, and particularly when we are trying to teach him something, when we know that it's a new word or a new concept, We've got to simplify it. And that's the best way that I can think of to explain it to, to therapists and explain it to parents because, again, sometimes a therapist will really kind of get hung up on, I don't want to simplify too much. Um, and don't worry about that. That's just, that's not even an issue with that. Uh, and so really, really look at where the breakdown occurs when a child is having difficulty shifting and sharing attention with you. And so sometimes, again, it is that they are responding to the object. They're just, for whatever, or responding even to what you say, but they're just not able to visually share their attention. And so they can't really look here. And by the time, they, they just can't look up at you. Eye contact may be really difficult for those kids. Um, it just may be more than they've learned how to do yet. So what do you do? You make that easier for them, and you you use all of those environmental manipulations that we talked about before, and so you might um, crouch down so that you are placing yourself in the line of vision of the toy. A lot of therapists will, will automatically put whatever they're talking to right by their mouths, and that's a good strategy too. But again, as a, that's not always practical. So as a parent, I say, or to parents, I say, put yourself where you think the kid's going to look. And so if he's looking down, you know, you've got to get down too. And if you can't get down, you've got to get him up on a surface where he's sitting on a couch or a table or in the high chair or wherever, his little booster seat, and so that you're right there. And he, he has more of an opportunity to look at you. And that really is for some kids um, what we really, really need to focus on with joint attention is they haven't they're – still, they're still so uh, inconsistently responding to people that eye contact is a real, real problem for them. And so think about that. Think about what you can do for that. And go back to, and listen to show number two. The very best way when we are losing a kid at the beginning of this, when he's not really looking at us frequently, is to get that going with social games. And so you make yourself so fun and so exciting and such a, you know, you're the toy that they really get in the habit of looking at you. And again, as a therapist, this is sometimes, uh, this is a lesson I teach myself almost every day that I work. <laughs> and it's, uh, w especially working with our little friends with autism or red flags for autism, you're so excited that they're staying with an activity and that they are playing and, and not 
stimming and not running away from you and not having meltdowns and tantrums or any other kind of negative behaviors that sometimes we don't work on joint attention enough because we're excited that we're so excited that we're calm and peaceful <laughs> but you've got to do that and so again social games when I remind myself of this and I think oh he's not looked at me in 10 minutes you know and hopefully I get it before that time but then I know I've got to launch into a little social routine and so I might play that little ah boom game that I reference on the show all the time when I need to bring a kid's attention back to me. And it's in uh, Teach Me to Play With You, that therapy manual that really focuses on social games. I might play a game you know, like that where I just do something to draw attention to myself or even something really fun, you know, like a, where if, if I'm about to lose him and he's just not really interested in the toys anymore, I might just do like an up-down game. where And I'm not going to ruin the camera shot right now and by – you know, demonstrating this, Johnny would probably, you know, turn it off and, you know, whatever. But anyway, I mean, he's now he's kind of saying, go ahead, and I'm not even going to do that. But with an up-down game, you know, you really stand up, up and down. You know, you make a big deal about yourself. And then that's when they include you. And so even if you have to kind of do that in between activities to be sure that you're kind of still in there, do that. And, and I'm treating a little boy right now that, again, listening to this, information I'm, I'm preaching to myself here <laughs> because I'm reminding myself of all the things that I can do to support him and to help his mom learn how important joint attention is and so that we can really really focus on that so those are other things and if you're looking at the continuum of when does this breakdown occur that is sometimes really really vital information that if you don't make yourself stop and think about that that might be um, something that you're missing and that again will make it a lot easier for you to teach joint attention with that child and then explain to his parents uh, strategies that you should be uh, using and implementing so that you can help joint attention really really improve all right so we talked about ways to help a child look at you frequently and that's you know one of the big things that we do with joint attention and let me just say and I think I mentioned this back in skill number two with responding to people a toddler's eyes will follow her little hands so if I have a little friend who is not overly aggressive <laughs> I take their hands a lot of times and just have them touch my face and really, really include me. Or even sometimes with some kids, it just takes holding their hands and putting your face down in their, uh, in their little space again. But, but whatever you want them to pay attention to, get their hands on it. So even if you're showing them something and they're not looking or paying attention, reach down and grab their hands and help them touch it. Now, for some kids, they're going to run off with the object and then you've lost them. So you want to maintain control of the object. And we're going to talk about that in a little while too, why that's so important. But remember that a kid's eyes follow their hands. So when you want them to pay attention to something, take their hands, put it there, and that will help them focus on the object. The next thing we need to do is teach a child to find you with his eyes. So after a kid has looked at you when you're directly engaging him, you need to be sure that he can start to find you and look at you from distances that are further and further away. And so if you've done a lot of social games with a child, you probably have done some of these games where it's not always about your lap games. You've gotten some games going from across the room. So like a chase game or a tickle game, you don't always want to start up close. You want to start across the room. So if, if you know, I were playing uh, a kid who likes for me to tickle him, <coughs> excuse me, I would, I would, you know, start that up close. But as time goes on, 
I would move further and further away and do my, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. And that kind of thing where he's, where as soon as I say it, he starts looking for me like, where is she? Where is she? And he looks up from what he's doing because you've gotten that game going. And so a lot of times you have to think about with your kids who are struggling with joint attention, go back and really work on skill number two and get some of those routines going, not because he doesn't interact with you when you're up close, but because he can't do it when you're further away. And some kids with autism are actually the opposite. They do better. They'll look at you more when you are not right in their space. I mean, that's almost too uncomfortable for them. And you can see it on their little faces. They start to just kind of shut down and resist or avoid or escape or whatever you want to think about with that. And so for some kids, you know, again, you have to do the opposite. You have to start with attention out there and then bring it in. But for a lot of kids, you start with it. They're good right here, but then you, they lose you and don't have the ability to find you. And so little things like hide-and-seek games or I just do it where I'm hidden behind an object. If I'm in a family's home, you know, I'll kind of get behind a chair or behind the table. And again, like if I were here, you know, I would, and if a kid were right there, it doesn't even have to be something that's like totally, uh, hidden from a child and, and you kind of want them to see how funny it is and usually you're so awkward when you're trying to do it that it's hysterical anyway and so you know you're kind of hiding down going and crouching down and going ooh, and calling their name and and again that weird visual plane for them oh you know gosh you know at this kind of you know triangular spot from me they uh, notice that and so that's another thing to do is kind of help a child learn to look at you from across the room and then when you do that when you finally get a child's attention like that a lot of times I'll have an object right there too and kind of start that's where we start the look thing and so he's learned to find me from across the room and now I want him to notice what you know I hold a toy and want him to look at that and that's where we kind of start the pointing where he learns oh I'm going to look to wherever her finger points and so you can start it that way too and so talk to parents about that how they can start to help their child find them from across the room and I'll tell you a lot of times parents they'll do it for a parent but they won't do it for anybody else and that's important too you've got to point that out to parents and say that's great that he does it for you but you know when he goes to school you're not going to be there and so we need for him to be able to do this with a sitter to be able to do this with his teacher to be able to do it with other kids and so that's why you explain that and why you kind of work on that distance thing then your next step with joint attention is helping a child after he's found you from across the room, learn to come to you. And how do you do that? Well, that's by being the giver of good things. Now, the first time I heard this was a psychologist that I went to her uh, floor time teaching. And this was so long ago. It's probably 10 years ago, probably 2009 or something like that. No, it's probably even before that. But I think her name was Dr. I think it was Dr. Esther Hess, and she talked about being the giver of good things. And I had always done that in therapy and thought about that because you know I'd already practiced for a while by then. But I really started calling it that, especially to therapists when I started teaching live conferences, because a lot of times we don't really think of that as a as a bona fide goal or a focus. And so why do you do that? It's because you're establishing that relationship with that child. And again, if he wants something you have, that gives him a reason to come to you. And a reason to approach you and a reason to include you so think about that think about pairing yourself and this is where our, our colleagues who are ABA therapists boy they know how to do this you pair yourself with something that the child likes and then that transfers to him liking you too so think about that in sessions um, and 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 
think about, you know, again, if you're, if you're thinking about let me do what this kid likes at the beginning so that he will stay with me and participate, this is a natural extension of that. So what are some other kinds of materials that we can use here? Kids who are really visual, who have visual strengths meaning, and visual preferences, meaning that they like toys that light up and spin and do something, use that. But sometimes that kind of backfires on you because we talked about then they don't include you. Well, you've just got to make yourself a necessary part of that um, activity. So I like to use toys that are so exciting for toddlers and young preschoolers to play with and look at, but that they cannot operate on their own. And so with kids who have a low frustration tolerance, you know, you don't want to give them that toy because they're going to throw it and get so mad and then you've lost them in a tantrum. But you've got to keep yourself in there and kind of maintain control of that toy that I mentioned earlier so that, again, there's that reason for them to stay with you. And at the beginning, they're not, if, they're, if they're not great with joint attention, they're not going to be able to take that toy and then automatically bring that to you, which sometimes when we read literature or recommendations, that's the recommendations. Just, just set up some environmental sabotage so that a child is naturally inclined to initiate and and that's ideal and that's a great strategy but for some of our friends especially those with red flags for autism or a confirmed diagnosis of autism we can't start there because they just get too mad and then you lose them so you have to maintain control of that and and really be good at keeping it light and fun while you're still kind of keeping the toy away from them but still giving them enough access to where they they like it and they're still staying with you but they don't go over the edge and get too mad and so you've got again this is finesse and that's not to say that you're not going to be great at it with one kid and totally bomb with another kid or even the same kid you know some days it's great and then on other days his system is just such He's just so on alert that the least little thing can set him off. So in those days, you probably don't want to work on this with this strategy. Um, but otherwise, use something that's really visually exciting that a kid needs you for. and that, Or something like a wind-up toy so that you're winding it up. And most two and three and even some four-year-olds with autism, a lot of them still can't get that fine motor piece so that they can do it. A lot of them can, and so they could do that kind of toy without you. But the younger the kid is the more likely it is that he's not going to be able to turn that and have the motor planning to use that on his own so a wind-up toy is great for that bubbles the old school way not the fancy machines that blow the bubbles themselves but you know back where you hold the container and you put the wand in and again you can't give the kid control of the wand because you lose them but so many kids like bubbles and it's just kind of universally appealing and so you're playing with them with the bubbles and they you know watch the bubbles and the turns are pretty fast and they can do something with popping the bubbles but then that's a great thing for joint attention because you're really really teaching them hey she's got to do it I can't even get the bubbles to blow without her so I've got to include her in this too so that's a great uh, way to do that another toy that I use here is a sphere ball and so you, um, the ball, you can extend it. And there's a therapy tip of the week about this. Uh, go to Teach Me to Talk's uh, YouTube channel and look at that. But it's a ball that opens and closes. And you can really look at a kid through that ball. And I've had such good luck with that. With kids that I really cannot get to make eye contact with me or to stay with me or to come to me, that's a winner of a toy to do with them. So think about those kinds of strategies and the kinds of kids that you see right now or um, your own child if they would really, really respond to that. And so another thing that we can do uh, is to really teach a child how to share objects by trading. And we did the whole show about that last week. 
But here we're really, really talking about, again, the kid being able to not just physically trade the object with you, but to stay with you while you're doing that. So as a prerequisite for the next strategy we're going to talk about is in incorporating opportunities for him to trade objects and give you objects and share objects with you all day long. And so the, the thing that I um, talk about all the time here is show, hold, and give. And it's a re uh, really kind of based on uh, the early start autism uh, training and that model, the Denver model for treating autism. And that's where, where kind of this is sort of based on, but it's show, hold, and give. And so you first you teach a child to look at the object where you're showing him the object, and then you teach him that he can hold the object, but you always have a component where he's giving that object back to you. And so sometimes, again, when I talk to parents about this, they say, well, once he gets it, he's not going to give it up. But there are so many things in daily routines like diaper changes that they will give up. And so that's how you start with this. So when you're going to change their diaper, you show them the diaper, and then they're, you know, <coughs> excuse me, you get them on their backs, and then you're going to let them hold the diaper while you take their pants off and, you know, get ready for that clean diaper. And then you hold your hand out and have them help you give give you the diaper. So then you're sliding the diaper under and getting ready. And unless they give you the diaper, you can't change their diaper. They're going to have to stay with, stay there until you get it changed. And some kids, again, can't use this with every kid on every day, every diaper change, because there's sometimes when they're Again, their little systems are dysregulated and they can't do this rather than they won't do this. But there are a lot of times that they will when they are calm enough and you can do the whole show, hold, and give. Or a sippy cup where they want more juice and you can have them holding, you know, you're going to say, oh, let's get your cup. I'm going to fill up your cup here. You need, you need more juice in your cup. Here, you hold it while mommy gets the juice. And so they're standing there holding the cup. And if they walk away with it, they don't get the juice. They have to come back. And so they come back and then you're going to say, oh, give me your cup. I, I need to pour your juice in. Or if they are insistent that they're going to hold the cup while you do it, Again, you can, you can carefully do it on some days with, with almost any kid. You can get them at some time where they'll let you do it. But you're really sharing that, and you're, really, you're holding the cup as they're holding the cup. And so that's how they learn joint attention, and that's how they learn that they're going to look at the object that you're showing them. They're going to have some participation in that and holding it and giving it, but they're staying with you. And, again, a lot of times, remember, a toddler and preschooler's eyes follow their hands so whatever they can hold and touch they're going to be more likely to pay attention to and to include you and so that's why when parents do a lot of don't touch don't touch that you know I really try to discourage that and say well we want them to touch it because then they're going to stay with it now if they touch it to grab it and run off run away from you <laughs> so that and that becomes their habit you know you've got to you know you've got to work on that too you know that they somehow feel like that they never fully get possession of something and so many of our little friends with autism or even um just typically not typically developing but it's a really common thing for two and three year olds to be very very possessive of their toys and their or anything that they want to hold they like maintaining that control and so you've got to really again teach them with that process that we talked about last week just the super fast terms like well I'm going to hold it but just for a second and then you're going to get it right back and but then you're going to let me hold it again for one more second and then I'm going to give it right back and then I'm going to hold it again so they learn over time well you know, I gotta let her hold it at least for a second because she's gonna make me do it. And again, not make me do it in a very dictatorial way, but just as part of the game and part of the routine and part of the, uh, uh, 
you know, that kind of thing when you're playing with a kid. And so those show, hold, and give routines are so great for that. And if you're not understanding how to do that or if you need some more help, get Let's Talk About Talking because it's really outlined in there. Um, the next thing that you want to do in this process is help a child begin to show you the objects that you that she's holding and again this is where she initiates that with you <coughs> excuse me or in the beginning pardon me while i get a drink or in the beginning it's going to be you when she's playing with something or has something that you're right there looking at it that you again put yourself in that close physical proximity so that she can see that you're going to look at it with her and so don't take it away from her because that's going to make her too mad but you can do things like point at it real intently and say oh i see i see your baby i see who's the baby you're playing with and so you might say something like look at her pretty hair and just touch the baby doll's hair or something like that that lets her get in the habit of knowing that you're going to look at what she's looking at and that it's not intrusive and that it's okay for her to let you touch it and you play with it too and so you know even leaning closer when she's holding an object or or even gently pushing her hand toward you when she has something in it like oh i want to see that and so then you might instead of grabbing the object out of her hand just reach down and and move the kid's hand like even just a little bit so that she gets the idea oh she wants to see this better and so that uh, that might help a kid do that too and not be too upset about that and start to really really include you now remember what we talked about before the cornerstone for establishing joint attention or the, the big thing that we look for and that we teach a child how to do is to look when we point and so be sure that you have incorporated pointing in all the other strategies that we've talked about so during show hold and give routines like we just talked about with the diaper be sure that you're pointing you know Here's the diaper. Look, look, you hold the diaper while mama gets you ready. Look, the diaper. See here. Look at that diaper. So that you're really, really pointing. And so when you're anytime you're showing a kid an object, do the exaggerated point. And I'll tell you that's something that I learned how to do after I had worked, you know, I was always pointing, but I worked with an OT one time, probably in the early 2000s, who she just perfected that. I mean, she pointed at everything, and that was, that was just such a good lesson for me to see how often she did that, and she was just a floor-time pro, uh, and floor-time, if you don't know, if you're a parent, is a really relationship-based approach to working with children with autism, and so she was just so great at that, and it really made me up my own game with pointing when I uh, worked with children because I, a lot of times as speech language pathologist, we are so focused on helping a child learn the meaning of words that sometimes we don't give a lot of gestures because we want them really listening to us and linking that. And, you know, especially a lot of times as we're working with children with, uh, if you specialize in kids with hearing loss, and hearing impairments, you don't give a lot of those physical cues because you really do want to train them to listen and to do it auditorily. But for other kids, our other language delayed kids, and certainly our kids with autism that aren't so great with this attention piece and aren't so great with um, the language piece either, you know, we've got to use these cues. And especially our any kid who has a receptive language issue, We've got to really do that, I feel like. And, and there, you know, again, there's a subset here with, kid, with therapists who work with kids with hearing loss, so that's a little bit different. But be sure that you are using pointing so that you are looking at uh, helping a child learn how to follow your point 
and notice what you are looking at when you're doing that. All right, so now let's take, I think we have about 10 minutes left. I want to talk to you about troubleshooting. So what do you do when all this doesn't work? Because <laughs> a lot of times you'll go to a conference or you'll listen to a course, you'll take a course or you'll read how it's supposed to go with the approach and then you try it with a few kids and you're so frustrated because you think, that didn't work. <laughs> she must not really see kids because that was a disaster. And so you don't want that. You, I don't want to leave you with that. So let's talk about troubleshooting because that's what, what we really need to know how to do. And again, as a therapist, this is not only important information for you, but things to share with parents so that when you're telling them all these great games that they're going to play to get social game or get joint attention going at home, and then they try a time or two and think, well, that did not go very well. We need to be teaching parents how to do it. So we, I've said this, this is the third time that we've talked about this, and I want to say it again, and it's important to tell parents this. There are lots of times, especially at the beginning, when we are working on joint attention, that we need to maintain control of the toys or the objects or anything that we're doing during daily routines or the kid is going to just automatically not include us. So talk to parents about that and a lot, you know, and parents sometimes don't even realize that they're doing it. You know, I'll talk, I'll say, okay, so like a great example of this is when you're going to brush your child's teeth and they may say something like, oh, well, I, he just won't even let me do that. And then you have an opportunity to talk about why it's really important <laughs> that we brush, get their teeth brushed so that we uh, avoid all those future dental problems. But you can really also talk about, well, see, that's another example of why joint attention is so important. He won't even let you do anything with him. So no wonder he won't let you brush his teeth. And so this is why we have to work on this so that you can get to the point where he can brush his teeth. You can help him brush his teeth. And so that really, really drives it home for parents. And they really understand, oh, all this therapy stuff really has real life implications beyond or even before I'm going to ever hear my kid talk. I've got to get these other things in, in place first. And so that's one of the things that you want to do. And so we talked about this with the, the cool light up toys or the wind up toys. You, uh, you want to be sure that you're a necessary part of that. And again, you don't want to have power struggles with kids and you don't want to tell parents, well, you listen, you're going to have to fight your kid all day, every day to get him to include you. That's not what you're saying, but you're saying, for a lot of the time during the day to help a kid who's having a lot of difficulty include you, including you is you've got to really interject yourself in this situation and uh, kind, of, kind of force yourself in there so that he learns to share this with you. And it's okay if your hands are on the object too and he's going to look at you while you're playing together. And so, again, this doesn't always go perfectly it's not supposed to I mean that's why the kids in therapy right if it were going to go perfectly you're not going to be seeing that kid because they're going to be a lot more typically developing and so uh, and, and, and even typically developing toddlers really sometimes struggle with this because they're they're really fighting for their independence and they are learning that they are separate people from mommy and daddy and any other adult and they have power and they can do their own thing and so even just developmentally we're, we're you know there, there's that and so think about that um, and, and consider that where again this is not a strategy where you're just going to have a power struggle with a kid and it really be you know a disastrous he's a screaming mess for your whole hour session you do not want that but you've got to kind of get that happy medium where you are uh, included with that and the best way to do it is to maintain some control so I have a little guy that I'm working with now that um, 
we're, we're just doing, a, he's, he's getting some emerging expressive language, but he really can only do it in a context where he controls the toys. And so one of the things he likes to do is name plastic animals. And so, and boy, does, has he, his mom has done a fantastic job with this. And so one of the ways that we can insert ourselves there, he doesn't really want me holding the bag. He gets mad if I'm holding the bag and he thinks I have control over the whole thing, but he will let me reach over occasionally and show him or hand him the next object. Now, he won't let me do it all the time, but he will let me do it sometimes, and so that's a way that I can get some control in there. Another thing that I've been able to do is put my hands on the container that he's using to drop the animals in, so sort of like a modified structure teaching or a modified teach approach where we're going to talk about next week when we start talking about playing with toys appropriately and functionally and that's one of the strategies that we use and so um and if you haven't taken my is it autism course that that continuing education course is on dvd there's a whole section about structure teaching there and if you've never done that and if you're that's something new for you as a therapist a new term oh my goodness you have got to learn about that because you can you can take that strategy and you can modify that with real toys and regular toys and make such a difference with these little guys who won't play. And again, I'm, I'm jumping ahead to next week, but so many of those kids have trouble with joint attention. And I'm just trying to give you some ideas and give you some strategies too from real life, like, you know, this week and last week, <laughs> things that happened on my caseload where I'm really struggling with this with a kid. And so helping them learn to include you in those routines. And again, you can't sometimes maintain full control of that toy, but you just got to get in there where they'll start to let you in and start to really include you. Um, don't just sit there, take a turn with a toy yourself. And so like with this little guy, I'll, I'll reach over and grab, you know, one of the animals myself and quickly say cow and throw it in the bucket. And so that's how I'm included with that. Or another thing he really likes is when he throws it in the bucket, I scream, uh-oh, you know, again, really sometimes loud, sometimes you know, do it quietly. Sometimes I do it more melodic. Sometimes I kind of do it a little bit more harshly, <laughs> like I did it then. He likes that. And so if you can change, you know, that's how he's including me. You know, he looks at me when I do that. And then after they like you doing that, you can pause. And then they'll start to, like, throw it in. And then it's like they look at you like, are you going to say it? And so that's a way to include yourself, too. So sometimes it's not, or, or a lot of times it's not always physically. We want to get to the point where they're listening to us and looking at us and anticipating, is she going to say that funny word? Is she going to make that silly face? What's she going to do this time, you know, when I do that? Or she didn't do it yet. Let me look up and see where, is she still here? Is she still playing with me? And so that's a way, that's great evidence of joint attention, too, when you can get a kid to that point. Now, I've used this word before, but let me say it again. Don't be dictatorial. So don't be a dictator and dictate what the child's going to do with the toy as long as you play together. So sometimes when we're playing with kids like this and we're working on joint attention, as therapists, we go straight into our whole therapist mentality where we're going to give them some instructions because especially for these kids because we know that they struggle with receptive language too so as soon as we've got them doing something we you know and I, I mean I do it too I'll say to that little boy that I've just been talking about you know oh can you give the kitty cat a kiss and I'll start or I'll start to just want to do my receptive language things and and that's when I lose them because they're just not developmentally ready for that. And I think, oh, I should let him do what he wants to do. And here, as long as I'm still included, 
I'm just going to play with him right now because we're working on joint attention. I, I, I'm just going to stay with him. I'm just going to do everything I can to that will that his system will be able to tolerate and that he will allow me to play with him. So think about that. So you might do some things like where you're gently redirecting his attention. So if he's, uh, let's say he's playing with a car, you might say, look at those wheels those are cool and you might even you know touch the wheel and spin a little bit just as a way to sort of get yourself in there but you're not taking the toy you're not making him play with it in a way that he doesn't want to do it you're not making him go to three developmental levels higher that there's no way he can do it so he's automatically you've lost him because you screwed up as the adult and you made it too hard so really really think about that you know what can i do to not be not be so directed during this but still let him include me and then guys when he establishes his joint attention piece and when you've really got that where he happily includes you or at least tolerates you then you work on receptive language then you work on him following the directions but until you can get him to allow you to do this kind of thing you're never going to get to that point it's always going to be a power struggle and it's always going to be him refusing and escaping and avoiding and you really don't want that so you've got to work on um joint attention and this piece first all right sometimes you have to change activities to change the mood and oh my goodness this is your clinical instinct or your maternal insight where you think oh my goodness i've got a tantrum looming oh he's about to have a big time meltdown here i can see it coming i can see it coming and you <coughs> start to really recognize that hopefully a minute before it gets to the explosive point because when you get a kid there you've lost him you're going to have to take the time to let him recover and to me that's just wasting too much time in therapy and some therapists really will let a kid pitch fit after fit after fit and johnny and i have a thing in our in our uh, uh ministry here our office we this is a no cry zone i mean we are just not going to cause kids to cry or or let a kid cry extendedly and uh for an extended amount of time i mean we really want kids participating and being happy and learning uh here in our program and so we try to really head those things off and so and i talk to moms about that and moms are usually great at it moms can say oh now don't you try to you know and, and i would never do this because i i don't do i just don't do any screens during therapy time i just don't do it i feel like that's an extracurricular activity that many parents pursue on their own and so even if a mom's going to try to show me a video on their phone that their kid likes during the session so many times i'll say you know I just don't want to see that till the end or you know I want to see that but can you send me that link because if you get that phone out right now there is no way we're going to be able to get him back to what we're doing here and so think about that how can I head this off what can I do and you're not avoiding every activity like I had one mom one time years and years ago that she said I don't want you to bring in anything he can spend and this is when you know again this was probably 20 years ago with doing uh, home visits and we all still you know took our toy bags and that was fine with everybody but you know she would say don't bring anything that he can spend and you know i want to say well then i need to not bring anything because you can spend anything i can spend my yeti here i can spend my glasses i can spend my glasses case you can spend anything so you can't get to the point where you leave out everything where you're considering everything but you know when there are going to be some things that really set kids off you know if you give a kid a sucker and say but you can't eat this till you you know five minutes and he has a really low frustration tolerance you know that's not going to work so really think about that and sort of head these things off and sometimes when i see it coming in a session 
And even when I don't know a kid very well, I think, oh no, you know, it's about to happen. Change what you do. Move to a snack, move to a song, move to a social game, move to a different place in your room or a place in your home so that you really change that setting there so that you totally switch gears. And a lot of times with a kid, I'll just do a movement activity. So I'll just grab them and, uh, you know, it, if, if they're light enough, you know, throw them up in the air or, you know, do a bear hug or we start ringing around the rosies or row, row your boat or a game like chase, you know, I'll run away from them. And then, you know, that'll entice them to, if we've played it a lot, they'll know they're going to run away from me. And then we head that uh, meltdown off. So parents are good at that. They'll usually tell you, oh, 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 oh that's not going to work <laughs> and so listen to that and really get good at changing that and then really talking to parents about how they can do that at home too so let me give you just a couple of little ideas and again these are from let's talk about talking but the little hiding games that we talked about are so great for joint attention because that really teaches a child to look at you from across the room so little things like hide and seek for joint attention where you, there may be two adults who have to do this, where you are with the child and you're looking for someone else. And it might not be, you know, going into the other room and opening the door to the closet, but you might have to start with that so that they really learn. I've got to look for another person. I've got to find another person. So those are great ways to do that. We talked about wind-up toys and how great they are, those light-up toys that are a little bit hard for kids to operate on their own. So think about that. Another thing that I like, especially with kids that are, are like two, two and a half, flashlight looking games where the lights are dimmer and I'm shining a light on the wall so they're following the light and they think that's really really cool but then you can also point that the flashlight to different objects in the room and so then you're gonna uh, transition that to you pointing at that object and that that really does work as you um, look at that over time so get yourself if you need some more ideas for that get yourself a copy of let's talk about talking it's um, exclusively available at my website teachmetotalk.com and you can find the link there below all right so today this was skill number five and i love talking about joint attention but next week we get to talk about play so i hope you'll join me for this next course in this series where we can talk about teaching a child uh, to play appropriately and functionally with toys and that's a very important pre-linguistic skill that lots of therapists kind of ignore and think well that has nothing to do with me yes it does and so we'll talk about that next time all right that's all for today i'm laura mize pediatric speech language pathologist and thank you so much for joining me for teach me to talks podcast